built a lot of confidence in me as both a leader and just a female executive and a female in business. But it also certainly helped me to see that that is not the norm. There's challenges at every level, big companies, small companies. I talk to startup leaders and VPs almost every day that are trying to figure out how do we create more diversity. Obviously, the female seller and the female executive is kind of the lane that I typically play in or my lens, but there is still a massive challenge. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Katie Ivey. And Katie's the regional vice president responsible for all new logo acquisition in the mid-market space for demand base. And in my conversation with Katie, we dive into a number of interesting topics. First, how she had an epic fail in her first sales interview. And I identified with that because I, too, had an epic fail in my first sales interview. Talk about how she's dealt with self-doubt. I mean, you aren't a human if you've never fought with self-doubt if you're in sales or if you're maybe you're just not being honest with yourself. We've got dive into why she believes that working in sales has given her the ability to accomplish more than she ever dreamed possible, how she's overcome the obstacles that are placed in the way of women in sales, and the steps she's taken to encourage more women to seek out a career in sales and sales leadership. So all this and much, much more, let's jump into it with Katie Ivey. Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. So uh, where have you been hanging out during the pandemic? Um, I have been hanging out primarily in Atlanta. I was in New York prior to COVID, um, bouncing between Atlanta and New York, and actually just made it back up to New York for the first time last week. Uh, But other than that, I've been staying put. And how was that airplane flight? Uh, So we actually drove. Oh, you drove? Uh, I had an apartment up there that I needed to move a bunch of stuff out of. So we uh, we did a a two-day road trip from Atlanta to New York, also in an electric car, so some charging along the way. It was it was quite the adventure, I tell you. <laughs> well, a Tesla? Yeah. Yep. So all right. So there were you could have the map, you had that showed you where the charging stations were and so on? Yeah, it was it was our longest trip in the Tesla since we've had it, but it was great, uneventful. Um, it was fantastic. Now, did you have to wait at any of the charging stations or because it tells you which ones are, how many chargers are available, right? Uh, yes, we have never had an instance where we pulled into one and one wasn't available. So no. And then how long does it take to charge it? Depends. Uh, it tells you exactly how long you need. Usually somewhere between 20 minutes and upwards of an hour, depending on how much juice you need to get to the next stop. Interesting. Yeah. We always try to time it where there was meals or you know something, something that we wanted to do if it was a longer stop. So it was actually a really relaxing way to travel. Huh. Yeah. I've been, I've been, well, I was before COVID, I was thinking about that. <laughs> I thought, oh, my next car should be an electric car, right? Be a good citizen and do that. But, um, yeah, that also got sidetracked. I don't have any place to drive right now. <laughs> yeah, we haven't done a lot. We haven't done as much driving as we were expecting. That's for sure. So, big question for you though. So, what's what's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself during the pandemic? Oh, that is a big question. I have learned a lot. Funny enough, one of the things that I had put on my list at the beginning of the year that I wanted to really lean into and get better at was remote management, which Mm -hmm. I had never done a ton of before. And so the universe (laughs) conspired against me. And now I have learned a lot about managing teams and leaders remote. Um, Still a work in progress, still definitely learning a lot. Um, What did you learn? So there's a number of things that I would point out around. I'm really good at culture and team building, being able to read a room's 
feel out where the energy levels are, kind of feed into the right things and pull people out of their shell mm-hmm. uh, and drive a lot of engagement, especially in a face-to-face environment, both with teams as well as in a sales environment. Sure. So learning to do that remote has been an interesting um, adventure or challenge doing some of it over Zoom, um, been making some progress, I think, with just different ways to structure both one-on-ones and team meetings, um, asking a lot more questions, just one, recognizing that things take longer, at least for me, in a remote environment. Um, I have to be very purposeful with how I use my time because a Mm -hmm. lot of the things, at least those kind of magic moments that you have as a leader or as a manager that just kind of happen organically don't happen organically when you're in a virtual environment. So I've had to get much more organized with how I spend my time to make sure that I'm making the right level of connections and getting the right things done. Um, That's probably been one of the biggest. I've had to become much more structured in my scheduling. Well, in terms of your your managing and coaching is what have you found that you've had to change in terms of maybe how you structure a conversation, how you open a conversation, those types of things? Yeah, I don't know that when we think about a one-on-one environment, the way that I'm actually structuring conversations and even the questions that I'm asking, I don't think that those have had to change quite as much. Probably the biggest change is it's required more prep on my side. So even when we think about deal coaching or uh, pipeline reviews or bigger picture sales conversations, Mm -hmm. I think I underestimated how much of that I absorb just by being in the same vicinity of people and picking up on very small micro things that are happening. And I can latch onto those moments and ask really smart layering questions around very small specific things. To do that virtually, I've got to spend the time to drill into, typically it's gong conversations, but some type of recorded conversations that are happening and then be able Mm -hmm. to pull out those more micro nuggets. Um, Initially, when we switched to everything to remote, I think the knee-jerk reaction for a lot of us that were you know, first and second line managers was almost going to this hyper-micro-management mode where we got really involved in everything really fast. Right. And that is certainly not scalable, also not the best experience for the team. So finding, right. finding ways to still find those micro-moments and small coaching opportunities, you just have to be really deliberate to do it, I think. I think it's a fantastic lesson for people listening to, to absorb, which is that, yeah, there's this, you don't have the... As you said, sir, the things you learn by osmosis, by being in an office, by being in physical proximity to people, that instead you have to dig for it and prep. Yeah, for sure. And and I think Love you have it. to pick your battles a little bit more clearly as well. So decide the, the one or two very specific things that you want to either pay attention to or even just the key strength that you're really trying to lean into with a rep or a leader um, and find mm-hmm. very specific ways to pull that out versus trying to you know boil the ocean and have opinions on lots of broad things. Because <laughs> time is more valuable and more of it is required, I think we have to be more specific in what our end goal and end result is that we're looking for. Yeah, because you're missing the casual conversations where you could communicate some of that stuff before. Yeah, for sure. All right. Now, I had read somewhere on LinkedIn you had said that uh, – we're just going to dig into your background a little bit is, – is that you badly bombed – I think there's a quote – badly bombed your first sales interview. So I did too. So that's why it resonated with me. So we'll have to compare stories. So you go first. <laughs> sure. Um, well, I got the job. So I guess I didn't bomb it. Quite as badly as I thought. (laughs) I was just very, very green. Um, I had a bit of an interesting background where I spent almost five years overseas working for a nonprofit before I went to college. So I had some leadership. Well, hang on, hang, hang on, hang on. 
Tell us about that. What were you doing? <laughs> sure. Uh, I worked for a nonprofit, a religious nonprofit called Youth with a Mission. Um, it was meant to be a six month, like a gap year in between high school and college because I graduated school. Five years. Yeah, I graduated school six months or a year early. So I was going to take a little break, uh, which turned into a much longer break. Uh, but I did a ton of traveling, uh, led a lot of groups, did a lot of fundraising, just learned a ton. It was also my first exposure to anything non-Western and just outside of the U.S. in general. So where were you? Uh, so I lived in Australia, up in the northeast, really small town in the northeast coast of Australia, uh, and then spent a lot of time all through Southeast Asia and uh, different Pacific Islands. Hmm. Yeah, so Very traveled a ton. Uh, so I had an interesting background before school, but then right. I studied political science, so literally knew nothing about business. When I say nothing about business, other than watching, you mean nothing, yes. I mean nothing. Other than watching my entrepreneurial father start a tire store when I was a kid, like that was that was as much of business as I had ever wrapped my head around, and so land in this sales interview job. And first of all, I talk really, really fast. And this is me, you know, learning to try to slow down for 10 years. So you, you can imagine how fast I talked 10 years ago or 12 years ago. Yeah, you, you and I share that same, yeah. same quality. Knew nothing about business. We did different role plays. At one point, they we'd done a role play. It was super simple. They'd asked me to do something again with a stronger value proposition. My response was, what is a value proposition? Like I just had no concept of some very basic things. Um, but I was really good with people, and I had some experience leading teams. So I think that's what got my foot in the door. Uh, luckily, I was gritty and a fast learner, so I, I figured things out. But yeah, I was uh, certainly not the natural uh, seller coming right out of college, for sure. And that was a job to sell what? Uh, it was for a company called Meltwater, which sold PR software. Um, it's evolved a lot. They do a lot of different things now relative to PR software. Back then, we were basically selling a paid version of Google Alerts, uh, but it was mm -hmm. to help folks understand what's going on in the news around their company. So is it a reasonable expectation to think that someone interviewing for the first sales job should know what a value proposition is? I mean, reasonable, I, I think so. Um, I think that the folks that were interviewing me certainly could see the aspects of both my personality as well as how I was wired to understand that I was going to have the aptitude to pick things up. Um, I think things have evolved quite a bit. I mean, at least the college students that I interact with, I mean, I get folks reach out to me on LinkedIn all the time and there's so much interaction and engagement um, that's happening, I think, even for 18, 19, 20-year-olds. Um, so from my perspective, the bar has raised, I think, a little bit. Um, I think it was in no way a negative on me that it was maybe a positive that I knew very little about business. Mm -hmm. uh, the core is to find someone that's genuinely curious. I talk a lot about intellectual curiosity yep. and I'm just fascinated by people. I'm fascinated by companies. I, I didn't know that back then that I was going to love business so much, but I'm fascinated with how companies make money and how they go to market. So if you can tie those th two things together, I think folks can learn just about anything. Yeah, I, I, Tell the story that I I graduated from college with no discernible job skills, but I had two things. One, I had an insatiable curiosity and a competitive streak a mile wide. And <laughs> yep. so I went into sales. And yeah, I had, I had no idea either what I was getting into. So my story, just quickly, and I've I think I've told this on the show before, is is Interviewing for a job with a company called Burroughs at the time, second largest computer company in the world, and to sell computer systems to small and mid-sized businesses for accounting applications. So all the general ledger applications. And um, <laughs> I get taken into a conference room with the guy who was the hiring manager. And the first 
question out of his mouth. First words out of his mouth basically were an accounting question. And I, I, <laughs> I can't quite remember what the question was. But, and I'd taken accounting in college and I'd done actually pretty well in it. But it was not what I was expecting on my first job interview <laughs> for... You thought they were going to lead with a softball probably, right? Yeah, like, yeah. How are you at least, right? <laughs> um, and I froze. And it seemed like you know, one of those indefinite <laughs> pregnant pauses. And I just like, oh my God, the only thought really going through my mind at that point was, how am I going to tell my parents how I screwed this up so badly? And so I said to him, I said, well, Ray, here's the thing is I, I know the answer to that question. You could see, you got my transcript in front of you. I've taken accounting, but I just, I wasn't expecting it. And I blanked out. So can I go home tonight? I'll get the answer for you and I'll call you tomorrow with the answer. No, this was pre-email and so on. And without a word, he stands up and leaves the room. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> I literally, it's one of those things like in a movie where you put your head down on the table in front of you. <laughs> it's like, but then, yeah, you know, like five minutes later, this other gentleman comes in the room and he introduces himself and he says, you know, hey, I'm Brian, I'm Ray's boss. So Ray says he wants to hire you. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, what an incredible lesson to learn. At the time, I didn't think it, but I mean, in retrospect, it's like, what an incredible lesson to learn, especially going into sales is, Tell the truth, you know, operate with integrity. Don't try to BS your way through things. And yeah, that's obviously stuck with me the rest of my career. That's awesome. And be willing to ask for second chances. You, you yeah. owned up uh, your mistake and made the ask of what you wanted, which obviously pays off in sales. It does. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we all screw up in sales. Holy cow. I mean, it's such a, every time you go into a sales situation, it's full of unknowns. So you are going to, you are going to make mistakes. I love that. So you landed the job. It's amazing. I did. And they did. <laughs> the follow-up to that question, though, was, or to that, that story was that, so I went to my first sales training class, like, I don't know, four weeks later. And big companies then, we all went to, in this case, Pasadena, California, and with like 25 other people from around the country, newbies starting. And you get sent back after two weeks with this evaluation from the, the, the instructor of the course. That you have to hand to your branch manager, no words, yeah, no questions asked type thing. And they thought, basically, they recommended that they fire me <laughs> because <laughs> because I was too analytical. I'd never make a good salesperson. Interesting. So one of my earliest bosses said that I would never get promoted because I didn't like sales enough. And if you've ever met me, you uh, or at least these days, you know I like sales a lot. A lot, yeah. Well, back then it was, it was for me as. You know, this was some time ago. There was a stereotype, and I didn't fit the stereotype. I was introverted. I, the sales training class consisted of a lot of sort of role plays that were, you know, they they prized extroversion over actually getting the job done. Um, and that just wasn't me. And, yeah, I'm always the person who wanted to know, well, why should we do this? And they didn't like that. So, um yeah, that was the curiosity. Good, good, of lesson, good lesson for hiring managers, uh, myself included. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if people have questions, you want those people. So you you said that you sort of doubted yourself early on. Um, what was that self-doubt? I just was very aware that I had a lot to learn. Um, I mean, I, I think to this day, we all struggle with imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. There was certainly uh, a lot of layers of, do I really have the chops to figure this out? 
Uh, I think more of it was just an insecurity and a nerves factor. And this was back when, you know, it was, we were, it was full cycle sales. So everything from the cold call to the demos, to the close, relatively simple product. Um, but because there were so many gaps in my knowledge around how businesses actually operate and make money, um, there was a lot of instances of not knowing how to adequately direct that process. So there are certainly nerves there. I think pretty early on, though, I learned, one, I'm a really hard worker, and I'm also competitive, like what you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was not afraid to you know, prospect late into the night or do whatever it took to make sure I came into the office with more leads than the person next to me so that I would get the number of at-bats that I needed to actually figure things out. Um, but I think that I did learn how to rest on the things that I was good at while I was becoming aware of the gaps and things that I had to learn. I talk about that a ton with reps that I manage today and even managers that I manage, right. figuring out their strengths. If you can find that we all have one or two superpowers or things that we're uniquely really good at, figure out what those are, lean in. The other stuff can take care of itself along the way. At least at least that's what I found. Yeah, well, I agree. I mean, I, I basically have spent my entire career in in complex technical fields and, you know, with no technical training at all. <laughs> so, but I, yeah, as we talked about, so, it would let off the conversation. Very curious. So that's basically how I chose jobs was what could I learn? And if that's it awesome. required that I learn something completely new, then more the better, right? Br- bring it on, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was very fortunate on my first job. It's like selling these accounting systems to small and mid-sized businesses I learned business. That's the thing is when you're selling <laughs> accounts, receivable accounts, payable, payroll, general ledger, job, job cost accounting, and so on, you learn how business operates. And when your customers yep. are CEOs and CFOs or controllers, oftentimes for those companies. Yeah. To your question is, is yeah. How do you make money? Yeah. And you referred to some, somewhere I saw on LinkedIn is, is questions asked is this is a question you just don't hear. Well, I think we don't train sellers to ask it. Is yeah, how does my customer make money? Yeah, for, it sounds so feels so basic, right? Right, but for new sellers, this is a great question to know the answer to, but a great question to ask so you can learn the answer is if you don't know, ask. And the yeah. customer oftentimes, my experience has been especially in when you're newer in sales, the customers will teach you how to sell to them. Because they'll tell you what's important if you yeah, ask. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Uh, and I think doing that initial level of research where even if you are very junior or young in your career, if you've spent some time digging into what you see on the website, done a little bit of your own research, you can come to the table with relatively intelligent questions, even if there are some gaps. I mean, to this day, there's companies that I have meetings with, and I know a lot about business by this point, but... I've read all the articles. I've done all the things. Hey, I still have a question about this aspect of your go-to-market. You know, I've, I've read this and I see this, but let's dig in here because there's a, there's a gap in in me connecting the dots in terms of how we're going to be able to help you. Uh, and folks, open, they love that question or well, that type of question. Right, and don't be afraid to ask it because people yeah. talk about resilience and in, in sales and so on. I think part of the resilience is not just you know, handling rejection. It's it's having the confidence you can ask a question that somebody else may think is too elementary or, you know, quote unquote, the dumb question. And rarely I've had a problem with customers when you want to ask about their business. They want to tell you. And to your earlier point around humility, the example that you gave from your interview, being honest or being transparent, sometimes admitting like, 
I don't fully understand what you just said. Let's dig a little bit deeper. Wait, I think I need another explanation or another example. Being willing to ask one more time until you actually get it is so key. Well, exactly. You know, we're kindred spirits here. And this this is because <laughs> I tell people is, is one of the biggest sources of value you as a seller can provide to a buyer is to make them feel understood. Yeah, for sure. And so when you have complaints from executives about dealing with sellers, not being able to add uh, value to a conversation, well, you certainly can't add value if you don't understand what their challenges are. If you don't really understand what it is they're trying to accomplish, what their you know, desired outcomes are, what the problems they're trying to solve. And to your point earlier, is I've never had a customer or buyer resent the second or third or fourth question that tries to clarify and understand exactly what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, for sure. I think it's so common too, and, and it differs depending on the size and complexity of the deals. But I think of reps that work for me and they're really smart, really talented reps, but sometimes they just get super busy and they get in the motions and they're going through this sales process that they know relatively well. And sometimes they forget to stop and think about the basics. Sometimes it's how does this company make money? More often than not, it's what problems are we really trying to help them solve? And if you can't answer that, then it doesn't matter how many details you can give me about the business and the stakeholders and all the different executive sponsors and the features and functions they need. If you don't really know the business problem they're trying to solve, then we're probably not going to win the deal. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all have self-doubt and this imposter syndrome, as you talked about. But one of the things you can arm yourself with as a seller is understanding. Right? If you want to have self-confidence as a salesperson, when you really understand what a customer is trying to achieve, you're going to start feeling it, right? Because yeah, you sure. know, compared to perhaps your competitor or anybody else, you've got it, right? You can help them because you understand what they're trying to do. Now you can really help them. Yeah, it's a great point. So is there a point in your career where suddenly it's like, yeah, it started making sense. I mean, like you had a, was there an epiphany or a particular coach or mentor that really made a difference? I think there's been a, a lot of those small moments. It was probably two years into that first job that I started to realize that I was genuinely good at selling and mm -hmm. helping other folks learn how to sell. So there was a few small moments there. Uh, and some of it was just winning certain deals. Like I have a couple of very specific deals that I remember getting across the finish line and almost being surprised that I was able to win mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. you know, able to, to land a, a contract that t today would feel really small, but back then felt like this huge whale or this big accomplishment. Um, I think probably the bigger epiphanies for me have come more recently in my career as I've started managing slightly larger teams and understanding some of what I bring to the table more as an executive. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I mean, it's always refreshing, obviously, but that's come in different layers of mentoring and coaching and recognizing, even to my earlier point, leaning further into those superpowers and things that I am uniquely good at and realizing that I can give myself the freedom to actually manage through those versus fixating on maybe the other areas where I'm not as naturally gifted or not as strong. So your management superpower is what? Uh, so I see people really well. Um, and typically that starts with seeing their strengths um, and then helping them uh, solve for gaps and weaknesses and challenges. Uh, but it typically is focused on helping them see potential in themselves that they don't yet recognize. I'm also really good at helping teams work together and building culture uh, and almost that multiplier effect of 
you know, one plus one equaling mm-hmm. three or four, um, mm-hmm. or creating those environments where uh, we're genuinely better because of the unit that we're creating uh, and the positivity. Those would probably be the two biggest things that I would consider myself uniquely strong at. Yeah. Interesting. So what have been sort of the biggest barriers? Because you've had a lot of success so far in your career, but you sort of, I think, sort of skirted around this earlier. I was expecting you to bring up, but as as a woman in sales, what have been sort of the biggest barriers you've had to overcome? I feel really, really blessed by the companies that I've landed at. Um, I feel like I've worked for some great bosses, men and women, um, and I have genuinely felt empowered at almost every step along the way. I've also worked in some pretty diverse environments Mm -hmm. during the time that I was at Marketo, which is where I ran a commercial team before my current job at Demandbase. I was there for almost three years. My direct boss that ran our entire uh, mid-market business was a female. uh, And then almost 80% of the team that reported to me were female sellers. uh, And one of the strongest teams in Yeah, one of the strongest teams in the entire business, just a lot of really, really great wins during that season. Um, I think that that built a lot of confidence in me as both a leader and just a female executive and a female in business. But it also certainly helped me to see that that is not the norm. Um, There's challenges at every level, big companies, small companies. I talk to startup leaders and VPs uh, almost every day that are trying to figure out how do we create more diversity. Um, I mean, obviously, the the female seller and the female executive is kind of the lane that I typically play in or right. my lens. Uh, but there is still a massive challenge. I mean, as, certainly as you work your way up, I think the latest stat I've seen is it's like 27% of if you get to the director level above in sales are, are females. Um, it's much lower even if you get to a VP and, yep. and higher. Yep. Um, so there's a lot of gaps there and a lot of opportunities. I just personally feel very fortunate that uh, even that first company that I landed in right out of college, uh, the types of diversity, we, we also had, it was very, it was global. So there's a lot of just international flavor um, that I think helped foster that. Uh, but I certainly did not grow up in that all white, all male boys club, Silicon Valley type startup, which I'm really grateful for. And yeah, well, clearly at Marketo. So what was Marketo doing to attract women sellers? Because that that's one of the challenges you hear all the time from from even from female sales leaders is there just aren't enough candidates for me to to evaluate how they how they do that. Yeah, I I don't buy that. Uh, I don't buy that at the seller level um, or at the manager level. Mm-hmm. I think there are phenomenal candidates. I think we often are not looking in the right places. Um, if we're waiting for those candidates to show up in our you know greenhouse or in our you know job boards or to organically apply for the various roles, um, then there's certainly going to be almost always a Delta. And I see that even for roles that I hire today. I think one thing that we did really well at Marketo is go out and find folks. Um, And then we did hire within our network some, which is also a reason that once you have lack of diversity within an organization, it can become very challenging very right. fast right. because you naturally hire your friends and you hire people that look like you mm-hmm. and are in a similar stage of life. Um, and I think that when Marketo opened their Atlanta office, so it was essentially their East Coast hub, and this was geez, five or six years ago, um, they did a really good job with the first round of hires um, and then the the female that I was reporting into, um, just drove a lot of diversity from that first layer, which then allowed us to create this really healthy cycle um, of both organic, inorganic, uh, and inorganic talent that we were sourcing. So, but where were they going to find people? You're saying, right, they weren't waiting. We all know know, the problems with 
you know, job descriptions for are so male oriented and sales on the job boards and so on. But but what were they doing that was sort of non traditional in terms of sourcing candidates? Well, one, we were finding people in person. So we were engaged in a lot of different networking events. Um, we were lucky to have strong female leaders, myself being one of them, but certainly others mm -hmm. that were really active in the community, well-networked, well-connected, speaking at events, getting to know folks, mentoring young, uh, young individuals uh, in different companies. So that created a pretty consistent uh, just flow of talent. Uh, the other thing that, and I don't know if we necessarily did this particularly differently at Marketo, but one thing that certainly works today is be vocal on social with what you are looking for. Uh, mm -hmm. Put it out there. If you recognize that there's a gap, I always, I tell the story of um, Scott Lease is a friend of mine, sure, runs a podcast. You know, you, uh, he recognized that his podcast guests as of late had been relatively non-diverse. It was a mm -hmm. lot of white dudes that he'd had on. So he just put it out there on Twitter. He literally asked the question, Hey, I want more diversity and more females speaking on the podcast. Anyone want to volunteer or any recommendations? I think it was 48 hours. He was booked for the next six months, basically, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with very diverse talent. Um, and the same goes, I think, for the recs that we're trying to fill and jobs that we're the, and individuals that we're looking for. Uh, just be vocal with what you're with what you're looking for, what the gaps are, and own up to the challenge. In particular, if you're a company that does not look diverse, if your website is very Again, very white, very male. Right. You're going to have to own that and acknowledge if you want to have powerhouse females or people of color um, or any other types of diversity join your team. One of the challenges you find is if your company doesn't look like someone that I want to work for, I'm probably not going to go apply for your next you know, VP of sales role. You're going to have to come find me and convince me uh, of what it is that you're trying to do to drive that type of diversity. Yeah, I mean, I had a guest on the show recently who use the phrases, you know, she first sales job she looked at, she didn't see anybody that looked like her. Yep. <laughs> and that was obviously dissuasive, right? I mean, it's just like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. Um, yeah. So have you had to make culture changes any place that you've been in charge, you know, that we're, that has been sort of the sort of nascent bro sales culture or an established bro sales culture? And if so, what'd you do? Honestly, I'm having trouble thinking of a specific example that comes to mind. Every company has their aspect of culture that needs to be tweaked, for sure. So there's certainly opportunities to grow and evolve and improve. I can't think of an example where I felt like I was brought into a bro-y culture that we had to immediately fix. I will say we're in my current role, we're purposefully looking for and trying to hire for more diversity as we speak. Mm -hmm. um, but not because I think we have a super fractured, challenging culture, but I think that we can do better uh, and we want to do better. Yeah, I, I saw some stat recently. I think it was close to three quarters of B2B sellers in the US are white males. <laughs> yep. So. Uh, I think there's also an element, though, of, and I talk about this a lot on LinkedIn and different things that I publish. I spend a lot of time encouraging women to be more vocal and to put up their hands for the jobs that they want. Um, there's a lot of research around how just females from a very early age, we're bred and instilled this mm -hmm. sense of needing to be perfect. Right. Uh, and so we are almost wired from literally early childhood to not ask for things or expect things until we feel like we have the job requirements, 100% of what that person's looking for uh, versus males that put up their hand much earlier in the process. Um, so I think that there, there's a balance on both sides. Absolutely, employers and hiring managers, we need to do better. And I think we have a moral imperative to do better. Uh, but I think there's also opportunities where 
we need to challenge. And, and I spend a lot of time challenging my, my female fellow sales people and sales leaders that we've got to get out there and ask for what we want, know our worth, be willing to be a little bit pushy, not be so concerned about whether we're going to be perceived as, you know, aggressive or bitchy um, and, and make the ask and put up our hands, even if we don't feel a hundred percent qualified. So have you come across any sort of research and this is, I, I see, I saw one thing. It was oh, four years or so ago, an insurance company had done research into relative performance of women versus men in sales. And on balance, the women performed uh, statistically better <laughs> and measurably better than their male counterparts. And I was wondering if we've seen any other research around that because I don't know. My my gut feel tells me that as we continue to proceed down this path, we are uh, with more and more technology coming into the space that the differentiator more and more between competitors, between sellers, is going to be this ability to really connect on a human level. Yep. And I don't want to sound yeah, sexist in another direction, but I think this <laughs> is a, a trait that women on balance do better than men. Yeah, it's a really good point. And there are some different studies that have come out recently. There's lots of, it depends on how you slice and dice the data and the specific fields and things that you're looking at. Um, but there certainly are numerous studies that peg women slightly higher in terms of just quota attainment and achievement from a sales org perspective. Mm -hmm. I think your point's very, very valid in terms of, I mean, even something as simple as, as empathy and being able to, uh, to my earlier point, read a room, perceive emotions relatively quickly, and then be able to pivot based on the other emotions and, and factors that are going on around you. Women naturally, many of us are good at that. I think stereotypes, though, can be really dangerous. Right. Um, so, in either direction, right? Yeah, for absolutely. So um, I would be hesitant to say that we're going to continue to further outpace, you know, men in these different environments. But I think there's a lot of opportunity as we recognize, you know, even to your point, this genuine human connection, building relationships, building trust. Uh, and being able to to read the room and understand how to do that with a wide variety of people um, has never been more valuable than it is today. Yeah, and you know, I asked somebody a question once. And I, just, I sort of phrased it as it's just a you know hypothetical, but I said, you know, this person because they were we were sort of having this. It was a guy and in sales. I said, so close your eyes for a second. I said, so think about and just imagine in your mind, sort of. Somebody that's you know stereotypical salesperson, you know these bad, you know exhibiting these bad sales behaviors uh, that we've you know become stereotypical over the years, but we still see, unfortunately. I said, you hold that image in your mind. I said, so is that person a man or a woman? Good <laughs> question. <laughs> it's always a man. Yep. Every time I've asked the question, it's always a man. There, just, there's another opportunity for us then. We, we don't have quite as many negative baggage that we've got to drag along. Well, but I think the issue ultimately becomes, is, to your point about, yeah, the research shows that at a minimum, women perform on par with men, if not slightly above. And if that's the case, then why, if you're a company that has a diversity issue with regard to women in sales or women in sales leadership, you have an economic incentive yep. to to take steps to try to correct that. And I think that's still elusive for some companies because you know, their culture is so deep-seated. But, yeah, we know people it, rational, rationally don't always do things in their best interest, but they should try. Yeah, they should try. You're right. And it's 
about so much more than just the gender issue. There's, I mean, the countless amounts of research that back up the fact that diverse teams perform better. Oh, absolutely. So people that think differently from different backgrounds, different races, different gender, different ethnicities. Uh, there is so much more that we can do together when we're surrounded by diversity of thought. Uh, and I think that also gets is, is another thing that feels obvious because there's so much research on it. Uh, but it's really hard for especially these some of these small companies and, and founders and startup folks to wrap their head around why that matters so much from an economic perspective. Perspective. Not not to mention the moral imperative, but economically, it really matters. Well, because I think in the startup world, the even though people will say this isn't the case, the fact is if you have less than 2% of, of equity investments going into companies led by people of color, then people take from that the lesson that, well, maybe we shouldn't be hiring people that are different from us. Huge mistake. Yeah, huge mistake. Well, it's a huge mistake starting with the investors and yep. <laughs> and huge mistake just hiring within your just purely within your network. I mean, the valley as you know, the valley is full of retreads of people that haven't were fortunate to be in one place at one time, weren't really responsible for a lot of success, but they get you know shuffled from company to company. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Yeah. All right, so. Um, I just, last thing we'll wrap up with is, is something new that I haven't done before. I may have done it once before, I guess. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some word pairs, and I want you just to give me an instant reaction to one that of the two words I give you that that pop into mind first. Okay. Very interesting exercise. Okay. All right. Buying or selling. Selling. Skills or mindset. Mindset. Training or coaching. Coaching. Outbound or inbound. Outbound. Persuasion or influence? Influence. Pipeline or win rate? Pipeline. Face-to-face or Zoom-to-Zoom? Oh, gosh, I miss face-to-face, so I'll go that. (laughs) All right. Two last questions for you. What's the last sales book you read? Um, I read Never Split the Difference. Chris Voss, okay. Yes. And... What's your favorite podcast of the non-sales variety? Because we know your answer for sales podcasts, but for the non-sales <laughs> variety. Of course. Um, I just started, Brene Brown just launched a podcast called Daring Leadership. I think I have the title right. Um, her first episode just came out and I listened to it this morning on my walk and it was amazing. Excellent. All right. Good recommendation. I'll have to check that one out. All right. Well, Katie, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Andy. It was great. So if people want to, connect with you. How can they do that? Uh, LinkedIn is the best place. Uh, I'm Katie with a C. So Katie Ivy on LinkedIn is the best place to find me. And Ivy with an E. I-V-E-Y. Yeah. Yes. All right. Well, Katie, thank you very much. Look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Katie Ivy, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing. Well, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.